We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Uh, I think Elijah said something uh, in, in the book of Kings about uh, hopping between two branches. It's impossible to hop between two branches, but I know you'll do it uh, elegantly, and you look elegant doing it, so thank you, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I, I know that the, uh, that the uh, topic on the agenda tonight is the book of Job, and I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. Uh, but uh, um, you go by Bill here, or Reverend Sachs, or what? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Bill indicated to me that, uh, that there may have been some uh, questions accumulating over the course of your time learning together that, uh, that, that I might be uh, an interesting perspective to weigh in on. And so I'm happy to start there if you, uh, if you like. Uh, or I can start with with Job. What what do you what would you prefer? Start start with Job. Okay. Even even the uh, editors of the Bible were wise enough not to do that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, I will. Um, so I'm going to preface by saying this, okay, that, uh, that most rabbis, myself included, uh, are not trained as biblical scholars. We uh, have some uh, expertise and knowledge in, in, uh, in the Bible, of course, and in some biblical scholarship. But generally speaking, I was trained as a, as a general practitioner. So I uh, learn uh, biblical scholarship. My background in Judaism uh, isn't in what we would call uh, high criticism or high scholarship of the Bible, but more in sort of traditional Jewish exegesis. Uh, and Job, consequently, is not one of the books that is commonly studied in traditional uh, Jewish settings. Incidentally, that's a, that probably is a more modern phenomenon as people kind of encountered in, in much more serious ways the theological problems of the book of Job. Um, uh, because the rabbis of the Talmud quote Job extensively in their argumentation. Uh, the Talmud, of course, is uh, a, a compendium of rabbinic law and lore that was uh, compiled in the 5th or 6th century of the Common Era. That's the Babylonian Talmud. There's a previous version of the Talmud called the, uh, the Jerusalem Talmud or the Talmud of the Land of Israel, uh, sometimes called the Palestinian Talmud, uh, which was compiled about a century or two before that. Uh, and there's a lot of parallels between the two texts. And uh, generally speaking, the rabbis of the Talmud uh, base their argumentation on the Pentateuch, on the five books of Moses, um, because that is the, the, the or text, that's the, the source of most of Jewish tradition and Jewish law. But, uh, but to the extent that they quote from other books of the, of the Bible, um, they quote very extensively, surprisingly, uh, from the book of Job. Um, largely, I think, because um, the, uh, the book of Job has these sort of like pithy poetic lines that, especially when they're taken out of context, 
um, are really powerful uh, and are really uniquely phrased and very memorable. The poetry of the book of Job is really unlike anything else in the Bible, which uh, is one of many ways in which the book of Job is unlike anything else that's in the Bible, which we'll talk about in a second. But, uh, but, the, uh, but so the, the fact that, uh, that traditional, in traditional Jewish settings, the book of Job is not very extensively studied um, might be a more modern phenomenon. Uh, because it certainly was uh, studied and probably memorized uh, by, uh, by uh, traditionally observant and learned Jews uh, in earlier periods of Jewish history. Uh, so, like I was saying, um, I was, I'm trained more as a general practitioner. So my background is in traditional uh, study of, of Jewish texts, which has its own kind of form of exegesis and own methodology. Um, high criticism of the Bible, biblical scholarship as we know it today, which was really developed in, in the 19th century, um, is something that is studied in the universities and in the liberal Jewish seminaries, of which I'm a part, uh, but, uh, but is not uh, the totality of uh, the education that we receive in those settings. So, you know, take a, a few classes in various aspects of, uh, of Bible and Bible scholarship, um, but by but I'm by no means an expert in it. So I'll, you know, give you kind of what I know, which is also mixed with my rabbinic background and my rabbinic uh, uh, framework and, and point of view. Um, the additional thing to know, as you I'm sure have talked about biblical scholarship, is that it is an imperfect science. Uh, there is a lot of debate uh, uh, about the. Uh, composition of and authorship of many of the texts in the Bible. Um, the book of Job is one of the places in which there is significant debate uh, among scholars about when it was written, who it was written by, where it was written, and so on. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, like any, uh, uh, like any um, aspect of the humanities, um, there's significant debates about the meaning of these texts. You know, what, what's, what, what are the themes and what is the substance? What are they trying to communicate and so on? Um, so biblical scholarship is sort of an imperfect science in, in that way as well. Um, so with that said, the, the book of Job is, is a very unique and complicated text. Um, it's unique in a number of ways. Uh, the first is there's no, I mean, there's no other book of the Bible like the book of Job. Um, so there's no other book of the Bible like the book of Job because of its literary style, that it's a, uh, a sort of, it's almost, uh, it's almost uh, theatrical, that there are these long soliloquies uh, that are entirely written in poetry, um, which is unique in the Bible. There's nowhere else in the Bible that I can think of off the top of my head that, that does that in such an extensive way. There are places biblically where, where it's certainly spoken in the first person and it's poetry, some of the literary prophets, Isaiah, for example, and so on, um, but not in this dialogical kind of way that the book of Job is. Um, so that makes, it, uh, that makes it unique. It has, uh, the mo and I love I get to use this phrase. Have you used this phrase before? Hapax legomenon? <laughs> All right. My favorite phrase in biblical scholarship, the hapax legomenon, is a, a word that uh, only appears once in, in a text or in uh, the totality of the Bible. There are more of those in the book of Job than in any other book of the Bible, um, which makes it um, incredibly difficult from a translation standpoint. 
Um, and and I, I suspect that something that you've talked about over time, but something that I like to emphasize uh, to my congregants and students is that all translation is interpretation. Right, so these texts are originally written in Hebrew, uh, Hebrew at various stages of the development of the language, um, which is one way, you know, I love that, Penny, that, uh, that, the, uh, that the Old Testament is like plaid, and you can kind of see strands going through, um, because if you are just reading it in an English translation, which is usually compiled by one translator, right, so I brought with me uh, Robert Alter's new translation of the Bible, which is exquisite, uh, and I commend it to you. Um, right, so this is one translator uh, translating the text. He tries to retain, so he says, the 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 weirdness in some senses of the of the Hebrew, so that each kind of individual text has its own flavor. But nevertheless, when one translator is translating a text into a language, it all kind of like has the gloss of that one translator. But the biblical text isn't like that. The biblical text kind of retains its uh, its its uh, unique character because it was compiled by people who didn't have. Um, word processing software, right? So they couldn't edit it and revise it in quite that way. They just pieced it together, right? With uh, the, the you know the old cut and paste way, right? So the so when you have a text that was written in the you know in the in the eighth century before the Common Era or from the fifth century before the Common Era in the Hebrew, the Hebrew is different. The original language is, is very different. It's like if we were to have a book that was kind of pieced together with snippets of, of, of Chaucer and Shakespeare and Faulkner, right? You would invariably note the differences between those languages because you're a speaker of, of English and you would recognize that. Right? So people who, who uh, have a familiarity with the language of, uh, with the language, um, can, can uh, be more sensitive to those, uh, to those differences, uh, in language. Um, uh, uh, and so the, the, that makes the Bible, in, in essence, very, uh, very unique, um, uh, especially for modern readers that are not used to a, a composite work in that way. Right? We're used to single authors, or if it's you know edited, right? It says edited by this person, edited by Bill Sachs, right? And we know that one author did this piece, and one author did this piece, and one author did this. That's not how the Bible is written. And most of the Bible um, is unattributed. We don't know who wrote uh, the books of the Bible. Um, so, you know, Jewish tradition has its own sense of who wrote some things, right? So traditionally, uh, Judaism believes that the book of Psalms was written uh, entirely by King David. Uh, and the book of Proverbs and the book of, uh, um, Ecclesiastes and the books, uh, and the book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon was written by, uh, David's son, King Solomon. Um, uh, and that all of the, uh, prophetic books are written by their namesakes. So Isaiah wrote Isaiah and Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah. Uh, but scholarship tells us that, uh, those are likely untrue for a whole host of reasons. Um, that, you know, the, the book of Psalms, uh, does not, uh, on close analysis appear to be a unity, uh, that, uh, the, the, the language and style and speaker and, uh, and theology and philosophy are, are, are not consistent throughout the books. So it's very likely that it was not written by one person, probably wasn't written by King David. Um, we don't have, uh, uh, virtually any text that uh, survives from uh, from the time of King David, which would have been uh, the 11th century before the Common Era, 10th century before the Common Era. Um, they're just now in Jerusalem over the past 10 years or so excavating what they believe to be the ancient city of David. 
um, and finding what they imagine were uh, is evidence of uh, of David's reign. But scholars aren't even certain that there was a King David, uh, much less whether or not King David wrote the Book of Psalms. So, um, uh, so even excavating the city of David is not necessarily convincing proof that there was a David um, any more than you know I don't know excavating the city of Atlanta proves that there was a person called John Atlanta, right? Um, so, which I think is who Atlanta is named after. Um, uh, if you want to read, by the way, this is just uh, an aside. The city of David. Um, there was a wonderful piece in the New York Times weekend edition uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, but written by a college friend of mine uh, who's a columnist for the Times now named Barry Weiss. Uh, and um, and it, it's just a really um, thorough and complex piece about the excavations of the city of David and the, the archaeology and the politics and the history. It's just very interesting. Um, so, uh, I mean, so that's, that's true for the totality of the Bibles, that we don't know who wrote, uh, these texts. And often scholars tell us the people who, uh, who the, some of the texts are attributed to, or at least named after, are not necessarily the authors of those texts. Uh, so the book of Daniel, um, was probably not written by Daniel. Um, it was, the book of Daniel is probably the latest book in the canonized, uh, Old Testament, um, he, which I would call the Hebrew Bible. Uh, term I prefer. Um, <clears throat> the book of Daniel is probably the, the latest, uh, but it is written uh, in the language and the style and in the voice of someone who had ex- who had lived two or three hundred years before the book was actually written. There are lots of reasons why texts do that. Um, one is you know to sell copies. You know, so they uh, uh, it, you know if 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 I wrote a book and put J.K. Rowling's name on it. Chances are you would more likely read that than if it just came from me. Uh, maybe not you, but if I was talking to my like teens in in uh, religious school, they would probably more likely read the J.K. Rowling book than mine. Uh, so that's one of the reasons people people did that. Another is uh, a little bit less, a little bit more benign is is to say, um, you know, here are these you know important mythical figures, uh, important figures in, in Jewish history or from legend. Uh, and this is what I imagine they would have said if they had written down what they wrote, or that I'm actually carrying on a tradition from these teachers or from these writers, from these people that only now is getting written down. So that's another way people do it. Um, the book of Job is uh, is not like that in any event. Uh, it, it certainly wasn't written by uh, a person named Job. Well, maybe it was. I don't know. It could have been written by a person named anything. Uh, but it's not written in the first person from the book of Job. Like the book of Isaiah, in a sense, is written in the first person from Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on, uh, or Daniel. Uh, the book of Job is written in the third person about a character named Job. Um, and uh, and uh, we don't know who this Job was. Um, uh, so we don't know who, who wrote the book. We don't know when the book was written. Um, and we don't know where the book was written. All right. So with that said, what do we know about the book of Job? So first, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it talks about a character named Job. Um, it is quite possible that the character Job was a, uh, was a well-known uh, mythical or legendary figure. So the book of Ezekiel, which was probably written um, a century or so before the book of Job, uh, talks about a guy named Job. Um, and there are parallel texts from Mesopotamia uh, and, uh, and, and other places that, uh, that have the same kind of 
that have the same kind of uh, structure and, and tell the same kind of story about a wager between God and Satan, uh, testing a, a person of uh, impeccable integrity, and so on. Uh, so um, uh, there's, there's, but the, the name Eov, uh, which is what he is in Hebrew, uh, is, uh, as far as I know, not, uh, not mentioned other than Ezekiel anywhere else in biblical literature. There's no outside references, uh, to him, uh, prior, uh, to that. Um, uh, there is some archaeological, uh, record of the book of Job, but most likely much later than this text was written. So there is a Job scroll in the Qumran texts, in the Dead Sea texts that were um, unearthed about a half century ago, but are from, um, dating from uh, uh, probably as early as the second century before the Common Era, uh, but probably a little bit later than that, first, second century before the Common Era. Um, so, uh, so certainly the book, most scholars think that the book of Job was well known and was uh, probably understood to be part of the canon of Jewish texts by that time. Um, given its language, its structure, um, and its theology, um, chances are good that it was written during the Second Temple period. So I don't know how familiar you are with the history, but just to back it up, um, the first temple uh, was, uh, as legend has it, built by King Solomon uh, around the year uh, 900, let's say, before the Common Era, 850, 900, uh, and was destroyed by the Babylonians. It stood in Jerusalem on uh, what we now call the Temple Mount, um, which the uh, Muslim tradition calls the Haram al-Sharif, noble uh, sanctuary. Um, and... Um, and the temple stood there until 586 BCE when it was destroyed by the Babylonians. The Babylonians, um, uh, uh, in addition to destroying the temple, took a group of, uh, of the people of Judah, who then they termed Judites or Jews, um, which is the, really the first time that that term is an appropriate term to call the people that we now call Jews but would have previously called Israelites. Um, is, in, is in this period that we call the Babylonian exile, uh, where a group of mainly nobles and priests, uh, scribes, scholars, aristocrats uh, from the people of Judah are taken into captivity in uh, Babylon. And there they reside uh, for about 50 years um, until the Persians conquer Babylon and, um, and King Cyrus of Persia enables the uh, Jews to, uh, who want to, to return to Jerusalem and rebuild, um, rebuild a settlement there, rebuild a city there. And sometime during that period of the, of the return of, uh, of the exiles, um, probably some, sometime in the late 6th, early 5th century, um, uh, the second temple begins to be rebuilt. Um, and so the second temple uh, stands uh, from that time, whenever exactly it is uh, rebuilt. Let's just date it at 450 BCE uh, and uh, stands until the year 70 of the Common Era uh, when it's destroyed by the Romans. It is uh, refurbished and rebuilt um, uh, about a century before that by King Herod, uh, but it's still essentially the same uh, structure. Um, I mean, it's same same 
function anyway. Um, whether or not it's the same structure is hard to say, but um, Herod does a very major remodeling of it. Um, so uh, chances are good it was written uh, during, uh, maybe during the Babylonian exile, but probably after the return of the captives uh, from, uh, from Babylon. Um, one of the reasons for that, I think, is its theology. Okay, so um, something that's notable about the book of Job that makes it really unique among biblical books is that it um, is not about a Jew or an Israelite uh, and is, has no Jewish or Israelite characters in, uh, in the story. Very rare. I don't think that there's any other place in the, in the, in the Hebrew Bible that I can think of off the top of my head uh, that is like that. Um, and so um, why that is theologically significant is that uh, it indicates uh, that the, the worldview of the author of this text believes that the God of Israel is also the God of all people which was not a given in a lot of Jewish history. Many of the biblical texts uh, talk about, uh, seem to imply that the God of Israel is one of many gods and is a, is a local kind of tribal deity. Uh, so, um, uh, um, so there are arguments that say that one of the classic, uh, what we say is one of the classic uh, 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 statements of monotheism in Judaism is actually likely not a statement of monotheism. We say, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. We translate now, the Lord is one. Uh, but it may very well have meant, Shema, uh, listen, O Israel, Adonai or Yahweh. Uh, Adonai is a, um, uh, is a pseudonym for the uh, uh, God's proper Hebrew four-letter name, which uh, Jewish tradition believes we've lost the ability to pronounce. Uh, but scholars usually uh, write it as Yahweh. Um, previously, it was fashionable to, to um, transliterate it as Jehovah. Um, that's, the, that's the Lord that is being talked about there, so it's a proper named God. Um, the fact that God has a proper name uh, uh, is one potential indication that there may be beliefs that there are other gods out there, right? but this one is our God. So Shema Yisrael, listen, O Israel, Yahweh Adonai is uh, our God, Yahweh Adonai alone, right? So only that God. Don't worship any of the other gods, right? They may be real. Baal might be real. Isis might be real. Uh, I don't know. Marduk might be real, right? There might be all these other gods out there, but the God that Israel's going to worship is Yahweh. Right? And there are plenty of instances in the Bible where, uh, where uh, our kind of modern Judeo-Christian lens on these texts uh, is to read back on them and, and, uh, and read them through the prism of, of course, Judaism and Christianity are monotheistic faiths, and so we're going to interpret all these texts through the prism of monotheism. But if we were to read these texts in their integrity, in, in their uh, uh, the way they were originally written, without that, try to take that gloss away, you'll find it uh, much more, much, much more uh, simple and satisfying to say that the authors of these texts um, did not believe that there was only one God, uh, and so, and usually believed that gods were attached to particular places. Um, uh, so that's actually, you know, as you read some of Genesis, I imagine, right? So Jacob. 
travels from his uh, 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 from uh, from his parents' home. He runs away from his parents' home, and he's uh, going to uh, his ancestral homeland uh, in in Haran. Uh, and um, uh, and on the way, he uh, stops in some place and lays down for the night and has a dream of angels ascending and descending a ladder or a staircase. Most scholars assume that that dream is meant, and, the, and then God's at the top of it and says, um, I will be with you as you journey, right? And most scholars read that text as sort of a revolutionary statement for the, for the time and place, that Jacob would have assumed that if he was leaving his homeland, then he was also leaving behind the God of his homeland, and then he would be protectionless, deityless when he is traveling outside his homeland. So that text is, is trying is arguing no, uh, just because I'm your God here doesn't mean I'm also not your God there. But again, that text doesn't say that the God who's there is not also a God. Right? It just says that I, your God, am going to go with you. And so, um, uh, you know, one of the one of the revolutionary things that the Babylonian exiles do that the Judites who uh, got taken into captivity in Babylon, um, one of the uh, revolutionary things that they do is um, previously people would have assumed, okay, Babylon destroys Jerusalem and, 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 uh, and Judah, uh, that must mean that the God of Babylon is more powerful than our God. And so if we're getting taken to captivity in Babylon, that God has just destroyed uh, our, uh, our sanctuary and our uh, and, and, and our, uh, and, and our nation, then we should bend the knee to the other God, right? But the Judites don't do that in Babylon. Um, they say, they, they write the book of Lamentations, right? That says that, uh, that, that, um, that God used that our God, the God who is the God, actually the God of everybody, used Babylon as the rod of God's anger and, uh, and destroyed Use them as a tool to destroy uh, Jerusalem for the sins of the Jewish people, right? But God is actually the God of everybody. So um, the book of Job seems to reflect that idea that the, that the God of Israel is the God of everybody. Um, Job, who's from the land of Uz, which uh, Robert Alter, I think, very colorfully says, is basically never, never land. Um, there's, there's no such place as the land of Uz. Uh, it means like some, you know, mythical place in the east. Um, there's no such place. Uh, some of the other places that are described of where some of the friends are from um, are places. You know, Taman, uh, for example, is the uh, Hebrew word for Yemen. Um, but notably, the people in the story that have identifiable places come from everywhere. Right from the entire known world at the time, the the geography of the Book of Job stretches the entire known world almost. Right, which kind of indicates that what the author is describing here is that God is actually the God of all of these people. Right, and all these people from all these different places are talking about the same God. Right, and and assuming an, an additional aspect of that. Okay, so one of the challenges and problems of monotheism is what do you do with evil in monotheism? Right? Evil is a uniquely monotheistic problem because if you're, if you're polytheistic, you could say that evil is the result of some mischievous god or some bad god. Right? But if there's one god, which means essentially one power in the cosmos, and you assume that that god is good, um, and also potentially that that god is, if not 
all-powerful than extremely powerful, uh, and you believe that that God is all-knowing, right? So knows what's happening, sees what's happening to everybody, um, and that that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere. If you assume those things about God, which are I think dimensions of of, of being a monotheist, um, then evil is a major problem. How do you describe? It? How do you how do you deal with evil in that circumstance? I think that there are really you know. Uh, 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 only a few possible options, right? One is that what God is doing may seem like evil, but is actually just, right? But is actually like, you deserved it, you just don't realize it, right? You know, an earthquake hits and, you know, um, uh, tons of people die, right? Um, God did that, but it wasn't evil, right? They deserved it. Or um, the Holocaust, today is uh, Yom HaShoah, the, uh, the uh, Memorial Day of the Holocaust, so apt time to talk about the book of Job, um, which is, by the way, as I said earlier, you know, it, modern Jews don't tend to, even in traditional settings, don't tend to study the book of Job. I think one of the reasons for that may be because of the Holocaust, um, because, um, the, uh, because the, the notion, um, the problem of evil is magnified in modernity because of the Holocaust. Um, we can talk about that later if you want, but um, but you know, so, but monotheism is a problem for the Holocaust, right? So you say, okay, so you have all sorts of monstrous explanations for you know for why for how to for how to justify God in the wake of Auschwitz, right? Um, there's a whole genre of philosophy that's actually dedicated to uh, the purpose of what the Book of Job does, and maybe one of the first instances really in in, in uh, in literature where, where this is done, um, a genre of philosophy called theodicy. And theodicy means justifying God. It's literally the definition of the term. So the, that's the idea. If there's one God and there's evil that seems to be happening, that evil uh, can't be the result of another power, so it has to be uh, the result of God. And note in here that um, that there is that there are other powers at work in the in the cosmos, right? So God meets with um, at the beginning of the story the Beneha Elohim, whoever they are, um, which literally means the children of the gods. Um, what are those? I don't know. Um, I will tell you that there are plenty. Of, there are a number of other places in the Bible that talk about uh, Beneha Elohim or Bene Elim. Um, you know. Scholars, I think, try to kind of uh, um, uh, work, um, uh, twist themselves into knots to try to say how the Bible's still monotheistic uh, and talks about things like B'nai Elohim. So it says that, like, you know, these are like powerful forces that exist, right? But that God is supreme in power over even those powerful forces or something like that. Or some people might say B'nai Elohim is just another way of talking about angels, right? And so God is uh, a supreme over those angels. Um, but I think that the that the simplest way of articulating it is that they are just lesser gods, um, and so that's that's an argument, by the way, of dating Job earlier an earlier stage of uh, of, of uh, Israelite history um, is that it isn't strictly monotheistic in that way. That there are these other gods, but they are but they're not they're not independent powers, um, although they do seem to have persuasive power. So one of the those other gods. Uh, or children of gods um, is a character called in Hebrew Hasatan, um, who I don't know what translation you're using, but the translation that I have either you know will just call him Satan uh, or call him the adversary uh, or the advocate or something like that. Um, he's a complex figure in uh, in 
biblical history. Um, only uh, referred to a couple of times. Um, and usually not as a noun, not as a proper noun. So Satan is usually used as a verb ascribed to an angel or some other kind of like powerful being. And uh, to Satan someone is to advocate against them um, or to, uh, or to, uh, or to uh, cause them to stumble in some way. Right, so uh, my teacher, Rabbi Brad Artson, uh, whose wife is a uh, is is a federal prosecutor, uh, likes to talk about Satan um, as a chief prosecutor. Right, it's the prosecuting angel. Right, so it's so in in later rabbinic lore, the Satan is the person when you get up to the pearly gates. Um, you know, is the one who uh, tries to make the argument that you don't deserve to get in there. Right, that's what's seen. So in this story. Um, that character is 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 named with the proper name uh, uh, Hasatan, or maybe that's not a proper name. Maybe that's a description of what he is, or something like that. Right? He's not given a name, but more like uh, you know um, uh, a title or something like that. So maybe that's what it means. Maybe it's like the prosecutor, but not actually given a proper name. Um, and uh, and uh, so that character has certainly has persuasive power. Uh, with respect to God. So God is, in that sense, not all-powerful in the story because um, God is swayed. God is also not all-knowing in the story, interestingly, uh, because God uh, uh, submits that he doesn't know for sure if Job is uh, going to uh, pass this test. Uh, it's true also in like the story of, of, Abraham, of the binding of Isaac uh, in Genesis. Um, you know, the story is introduced with uh, some time after that, God put Abraham to the test. Um, well, putting someone to, to the test is a, uh, is, is a challenge to omniscience, to God being all-knowing. Because why would an all-knowing God need to test anybody? Right? Now you could say, okay, the test isn't for God to know. The test is for the person to go through the test. Maybe, okay. But in this case, it's, it seems literally for God to know. Right? Or at least for God to prove to, to Satan that Satan's wrong. Right? Now, it seems to me that if the premise of the story is that God is all-knowing, God could have just said to Satan, Hey, Jack, I'm all-knowing, and I'm not going to make this guy suffer just because like, you have an inkling that I could be wrong. Like, trust me, I'm God, I'm not wrong. Right? But God doesn't do that. God says, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Let's, let's do this to this guy and see what happens. Right? Um, okay, so, um, but the, the overall theme of the story is this idea of, of, of you know, how, how can evil exist uh, when, um, when, if, if there's one God? And uh, the corollary to that is why do bad things happen to good people? Um, right, and so that's the premise of the story. Job is a perfectly good person. He's described as a perfectly good person. Um, everything's going well for him in life. And uh, then there's this wager that happens. Uh, and uh, everything starts to go south for Job, uh, and uh, and so he and so he is wondering why would some these terrible things happen to me when I don't deserve them, right? Now, um, I will say that the that that premise that question is in some ways a um, a, a revolutionary question in in biblical literature altogether, because there are plenty of places elsewhere in the Bible where it is asserted with clarity that 
um, God punishes and rewards justly, right? Um, so, uh, so that uh, um, uh, uh, you know, the book of um, uh, uh, starting from starting from Genesis, right? Uh, uh, Adam and Eve eat from the tree. God kicks them out of the garden, right? Um, they sinned and they get punished, right? Um, the people in Noah's time, right? Sin, they get wiped out, right? They're evil, but the the upright person gets saved, right? Um, later texts kind of play with that idea a little bit, and they might say, uh, like in um, uh, uh, um, like in the Ten Commandments, um, uh, that God is a jealous God uh, and, or a zealous God uh, and um, uh, exacts the uh, punishment of parents on children. Um, uh, but then later on uh, in the book of Exodus, it says that God is merciful and withholds punishment uh, to the third and fourth generation. Um, so uh, eventually the punishment happens. It's just withheld. And that's understood to be like an act of mercy on the person who committed the crime in the first place. Um, and then it's played with a little bit more in the book of Deuteronomy, where it's not necessarily individuals get punished for every wrongdoing that they do. Uh, but there's a collective sense of good and evil. So if the people as a whole obey the Torah, then the rains will fall in their season and the land will yield its produce. But if the people don't, then the sky will turn to copper and the land will turn to brass or whatever it says in, in Deuteronomy and it won't, you won't have any food and you won't have any crops and nothing will grow. Um, so it's sort of a, a, a corporate reward and corporate punishment, but not necessarily just, you know, um, if, if you don't, if, if you don't observe the Sabbath, you're going to get struck with a lightning bolt. That's, so it kind of changes from that to a more corporate punishment. Those are also ways of dealing with the, with the problem of, uh, of evil and the question of God's justice. Um, and they do it in different ways. Later tradition, which is notably absent from the book of Job and is notably absent from basically all of the Old Testament, later Jewish tradition uh, deals with that with a moral afterlife, right? That, uh, that, that there's, no, there's no reward and punishment uh, for our transgressions or our merits in this life, um, and it will, uh, and, and those reward and punishments will happen in the next world. So whether that's the messianic era or whether that is where you go after you die, there's, uh, justice, adjudication and justice in, in that time. But that's, that doesn't happen, right? None of Job's friends say to him, listen, man, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes people fall on hard times and they don't deserve it, but know that you're going to get rewarded for your goodness in, uh, in heaven, right? None of the friends say that. Um, because it's quite possible that that, that that idea didn't exist yet in, um, in, in the tradition at that point. Um, what else can I say about the book of Job? And then we can open up for conversation and questions. Um, so Job, these bad things befall Job. His three friends come to visit him. Um, at first, the three friends, I think, actually are really exemplary. Uh, they... Um, uh, actually, let me just add one quick thing about this, the debate and question about God's justice that's present in the book of Job. One of the ways that the book of Job gets used in Jewish tradition is that a lot of the language from it gets reincorporated into the Jewish funeral service in passages and prayers that um, articulate God's justice. 
So the prayer that we say in Judaism when someone dies is Baruch Atah Adonai Dayan HaEmet. Praised are you, Adonai, Lord, Yahweh, whatever. Praised are you, Lord, uh, the true judge. And then we recite a passage on most days. There's some days where we don't because it's like a festive day in some ways. We don't do this. But um, generally speaking, we recite a passage called Sidukadin, which means um, a, a, an affirmation of the, um, of the righteousness of God's judgment in this person dying or just in general, right? Which much of the language from that text was taken from the book of Job. Um, so... Uh, I, I think kind of interestingly, the rabbinic tradition kind of like twists or takes Job out of context to be an affirmation of God's justice, even though I'm not sure that the book of Job is an affirmation of God's justice. I think that the book of Job leaves pretty open the question of God's justice. Um, God doesn't really resolve the question of God's justice at the end. Um, God just says to Job, um, you don't have the, you don't have the capacity to know what I know. You know, you don't, you don't, you haven't seen what I've seen. You haven't been present at the creation. We don't know the intricacies of creation. Now, that's not exactly an argument for saying, trust me, I'm right. That seems like, what, what do they, what do the kids call it today? Gaslighting? Yeah. <laughs> that's like a deflection from the actual question, which is, tell me why this is just that I'm being punished like this. Like, God doesn't actually answer that question. So I think that the rabbinic tradition actually kind of like, you know, reappropriates Job to be an affirmation of God's justice, even though it's not necessarily. Okay, um, I just want to say a couple words about Job's friends, because that's the, the, the essence of the story, is Job is visited by these three friends. Uh, and initially, the three friends kind of make it seem uh, like they're, they're really kind and supportive and good friends. They're, they're pained at Job's pain when they first see him. And they sit with him for seven days and don't say anything. Jewish tradition takes that idea, um, or maybe it took that idea from Jewish tradition. I'm not sure which came first. Um, that when uh, <clears throat> when someone has a loss in Judaism, we do something called sit shiva, uh, which means to have an intense period of mourning for seven days in which we're not really supposed to leave our home, uh, not go to work, not uh, participate in social life. Um, but that the community is supposed to come to you to support you in whatever way you need. Um, provide you with food, do your laundry, clean your house, things like that. Um, the uh, Jewish law is actually pretty clear about this, that when you go to someone's house for Shiva, you're not supposed to speak to them until they speak to you. Right? The conversation is supposed to be driven by the person in mourning. Not by, it's not an opportunity for you to say, oh, I'm going to take their mind off of it and entertain them. That's not the purpose. It's awkward, uh, so I like go to a lot of shiva houses, and generally speaking, that's not how it plays out. Um, but that's at least the ideal in the tradition is actually to do what Job's friends do here at the beginning of the story. Okay, but then, within uh, I guess you know it was like enough of that for seven days, and uh, and then they open their mouths and they uh, start talking, and basically they all say uh, that um, they all they all say you know really you must have done something wrong. Right? Um, like there, there's got to be a reason why God did this to you. You may not know what it is, you, or you may not be telling us what it is, but like, but God doesn't just do this 
to somebody who doesn't deserve it. So you probably deserved it. And Job spends his whole time um, arguing against that, saying, I don't know why God did this to me, but I can tell you that I didn't deserve it. And then they start kind of arguing about that, like, how dare you impugn the integrity of God, right? And so and then it's an argument about, about uh, God's integrity and the, um, uh, the limits of, of, of human knowledge and, and all those things. Um, there's a fourth friend who kind of appears out of nowhere. Um, it's like... Um, uh, 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 Elihu ex machina. He sort of appears out of nowhere, and he, but he basically gives the same. He, he claims that he's going to make the argument better than the other three friends do, but he essentially gives the same argument that that God is just. What's happened to you must be a result of God's justice, and don't impugn the integrity of God. That idea of not impugning the integrity of God um, is a refrain, in a sense, of that prayer that I mentioned, Sidu Kadin, that we don't we don't cast aspersions on God's um, on God's justice. Right, so. Sort of what Elihu says. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then finally, so all the friends say their peace. Job responds to all of them. Uh, and then essentially the, the book concludes, uh, with, uh, with God speaking to Job out of a whirlwind. Um, why a whirlwind? I think that's open for conversation. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about why a whirlwind. Um, but, uh, God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, uh, to basically say to him, what I mentioned before, that, that there's just no way for you to know what I know, um, and, uh, and you, you don't have a frame of reference that, that I have, which again is not really an answer to Job's question about, uh, why what's happening to him is deserved. Um, it's, it's, um, it, you know, in some sense, it may be an exoneration from God, of God, but it's not an answer to Job's question. Um, there is, there are in God's answer there in the latter chapters of Job, um, interesting allusions to uh, earlier pieces of ancient Near Eastern mythology. Um, so there is a, uh, a dragon mentioned and a Leviathan mentioned that God subdued these forces. Uh, so um, uh, as you might have talked about in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis uh, takes the, uh, the tropes of uh, a lot of different ancient Near Eastern mythologies, especially uh, Babylonian mythology, um, but demythologizes them to make them um, a very kind of like simple act of a much more powerful deity. So whereas the Babylonian uh, epics are gods battling gods and then flaying their carcasses and then the carcass becomes the sky, right? God also separates things. One thing becomes the sky, one thing becomes the ocean, but it's not gods battling each other, right? Um, with the With the message of Genesis, in a sense, being um, that there may be other powers in the universe, but the only one that is really relevant is God. Now, the book of Genesis is a somewhat later text in Jewish tradition. Um, it's not one of the earlier biblical texts, so that's sort of later development of, of, uh, of, of Jewish theology. Uh, the book of Genesis was written uh, in the priestly tradition, um, which is probably like 6th century uh, BCE, so maybe maybe 100 years before the first temple was destroyed. Um, uh, the book of Job makes allusions, more, more concrete allusions to those other mythologies, but I think essentially is using them for the same purpose. Es essentially saying, you know, God, uh, God is the, is the dominant power in the universe. God conquers chaos. God conquers evil. Uh, no evil is allowed to exist except for by virtue of God, right? Um, God is in charge of both good and evil, right? Like the, in the language of Isaiah, God is, um, uh, shalom ra. God is uh, uh, the maker of peace and the doer of evil. Um, uh, 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 sorry, um, 
Yotzer or Ubore Choshech, the make, the creator of light and the, uh, maker of dark. Uh, Oseh Shalom Ubore Ra, the, um, the maker of peace and the creator of evil. I love that line in part because of what Jewish tradition does to it. So in, we use that line in our daily prayer book, but change just slightly. So now we say God is Yotzer or Uvore Choshech, the creator of light and the maker of darkness, Oseh Shalom, the maker of peace, Uvore Atakol, and the creator of everything. Right? So later Jewish tradition struggles with this idea of God being responsible for evil so much that they change a word from a biblical text, which should be sacrosanct, so as to kind of smooth out that rough edge in our daily liturgy. Um, but here, I think that those um, mythological battles and creatures are alluded to, in a sense, for God to show that God has dominion over all those other forces, and that those forces are not independent actors, right? So, like, evil doesn't exist because it's an absence of God or because it's an element of God's power that, uh, that, that has been checked or something like that. God conquered Leviathan fished him out by a fish hook and, you know, ate the meat or whatever it is that Job says. So um, uh, so uh, that's God speaking out of the world. And then, of course, the, the book has a, has a happy ending, I guess. Uh, Job, uh, Job's fortunes are restored. His health is restored. His family is restored. He has more children. His, his daughters are more beautiful uh, than his previous daughters. I'm not as the father of daughter, I'm not sure that that would be so comforting. But anyway, um, uh, uh, that so you know, which also the fact that it has a happy ending leads me to feel like uh, this is not a um, this may be actually designed to be a comedy and not a tragedy, right? So um, uh, and. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the Cohen brothers, uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen, made a movie a few years back called A Serious Man. Have any of you ever seen that? A Serious Man? Okay, so um, if you haven't, I think it's on Netflix. Um, you should definitely watch it because it's basically a modern take on the book of Job. Really, really well done and very funny. I mean, darkly funny, but very funny. Um, and... It, that, that same kind of uh, theme, like if you read Job from that perspective, that, that there's something absurd about it, right? That maybe it was actually designed to be a comedy. People make that argument about other books of the Bible too, the book of Esther, for example. Um, maybe a, a more obvious example of that, that, that it's meant to be a comedy. But So maybe this is too. I don't know. It seems pretty dark to be a comedy, but you know there are dark comedies out there. Um, okay, so why don't I stop there? What time do we usually do you usually go until? Hey, okay, great. So this is a good time maybe to stop and have a conversation. So questions about the book of Job? Comments about the book of Job? Questions about everything else? Can you tell me your name? Hi, Minnie. And Yeah, so um, I'm going to qualify this, and then I'm, you might hear me qualify other things like this later. So um, what what uh, Jews believe is a lot of things, um, uh, and, and I, I often tell people that, that I don't believe that there's such a thing as Judaism, really any more than I believe that there's such a thing as Christianity, because um, Judaism is you know just describes the beliefs, practices, texts, and traditions that Jews have uh, have uh, uh, held as sacred throughout Jewish history. 
but that is a wide range of things um, and depended on how learned you were or how not learned you were, where you lived geographically, um, what period of history you lived in, so on and so on. Um, so Jews believe a lot of things about uh, what happens to them after they die. I suspect that if you, you know, ask a, a random sampling of Jews on the street, most Jews will tell you that they had been taught that Judaism does not believe um, in hell. Um, and so that probably means to them that they believe that there's only heaven um, or that they don't know uh, about an afterlife, but Judaism doesn't focus on that and that uh, uh, Judaism is more this worldly and it's not really important what happens to us after we die, which I guess there's an element of truth to that. Judaism is much more, you know, the Bible, like I said, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, um, uh, except for maybe, depending on how you read it, the book of Daniel um, doesn't talk um, uh, about certainly doesn't talk about a moral afterlife um, and, uh, and, and talks ex almost exclusively about stuff that's happening in this world and stuff that we're supposed to do in this world. Um, it, in uh, some places in biblical literature, talks about a place called Sheol, which is like um, the netherworld or the underworld, kind of like Hades in Greek mythology. Um, but, that's, uh, but that's like, that, you know, that's a place where because you get buried in the ground, so presumably that like that's where all the dead people are hanging out is underground somewhere. Um, later Jewish tradition, in part because of this problem of uh, of, of 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 evil and of the suffering of the righteous, uh, develops a more uh, fleshed out tradition of a moral afterlife in which there's heaven and hell. Um, so you know, I, I like to tell uh, my congregants and students that um, uh, that you know when I come to a text where there's a clear reference to hell, which is usually called in, in uh, rabbinic literature uh, Gehinom or Gehenna, um, which you might be familiar with in, in, the, in, in Christian scriptures, um, that, uh, um, uh, uh, that, that's, that that's the hell that Jews believe in that you were taught Jews don't believe in, right? Um, because it's there in Jewish tradition. And it makes sense, right? If, you know, if God is a just God and we don't get rewarded or punished in this life, um, that that we have to have some kind of accounting for our uh, uh, merits and demerits uh, in, 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 at some point. Otherwise, God isn't just. Um, so, um, so that that accounts for the afterlife. Now, um, uh, whether or not Jews, you know, believe in that, you know, whether or not even the Jews who believe in that version of the afterlife believe in it literally or figuratively, I don't know. I, I tend to believe in it more figuratively because I believe in a much more naturalistic point of view of God. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, believe that our, that we live on after, after death, but probably not in a moral sense. And there may be aspects of our, you know, of our energy that get weighed down by transgression or things like that. I don't know. But, um, uh, uh, some Jews say that, that those, those traditions, the afterlife aren't referring to like the place you go after you die, after you die, you don't go anywhere. Um, but, uh, uh, there's a world that is coming. Hebrew Olam Haba, or next world, uh, Messianic era, and the Messianic era, that's when God's going to sort all those things out, and that's where God's justice is going to um, uh, apply. And so, the, you know, there there will be people who will, you know, get to party in Jerusalem, and there will be people who will be sent to eternal damnation in um, in that afterlife. Yeah, what's your name? Russ. Hi, Russ. So if you go to Miami and read the obituary. See a lot of Jewish mm -hmm. and they're all being buried in Jerusalem. Uh huh. So what is that related to 
Um, they're being buried in Jerusalem. Um, yes and no. So I think that um, there's a few aspects of that. One is, uh, yeah, I think that there's, uh, you know, a you know, sort of messianic dimension to that. You know, uh, uh, Jerusalem is where God's reign is going to be and God's going to bring us there. So we'll make it a little bit easier on God to, uh, to, to, to bring us back if we're already there. I think that may be a piece of it. I think another piece of it um, is um, a, a an affinity for the land and the state of of Israel, um, and a, a, a statement of um, enduring connection to the land. Um, a a piece of it, you know, I I, um, I, I used to lead um, Jewish teens on bus trips during the summer around the country, and I'd always take them to um, the Crazy Horse Monument in South Dakota near Mount Rushmore. And um, uh, the quote from Crazy Horse that they like have emblazoned on everything there is, um, my, my lands are where my dead lie buried. Um, and so I think that there's an element of that there, is that like, you know, that, that, um, that, there's, that Miami isn't uh, where Jewish people are indigenous. Right, um, uh, may seem like it, but it's not where Jewish people are indigenous to. Right, we're indigenous to the land of Israel, and so that's where we—that's where we should be buried. Um, and for something like I, for myself, I consider you know uh, being buried there, part because I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I was born and raised in Atlanta. I live in Richmond now. I'm, you know, I, maybe I'll be here for the rest of my life. Maybe I don't know where my kids are going to be. You know, so like Israel will always be central to the Jewish people, but uh, but I, you know. Who knows if my descendants are going to visit me if I'm buried in Richmond, right? And so I want them to visit me. Right. So, um, it, you know, you raise an interesting point there uh, that, and, and um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of striking that none of Job's friends raised that as a defense of God. Yeah. Right? They, you know, they could say, you know, they could say, you know, the, the you know, the, the Chaldeans who slaughtered all your sheep and killed your children um, uh, made a choice, you know. Um, God didn't tell them to do it. They don't make that argument. Um, uh, and I would say that, the, that, the, uh, that in biblical literature, um, the theology is kind of mixed. Um, I would say it predominantly falls in the camp of human freedom, um, you know, most of the Pentateuch doesn't really make any sense if there's not freedom, because there's, if human beings don't have free will, then, you know, giving a, uh, five books filled with commandments don't really make, doesn't make really a lot of sense. Um, uh, and, you know, and so, uh, that, that, and that certainly is prevalent, you know, in Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition presumes that God is, um, uh, the Talmud says, a kol shemayim, Everything is in the hands of heaven except for the fear of heaven. Right? In other words, um, basically, God controls everything except for human freedom, right? And um, and then I think you know other uh, other uh, voices in the tradition would kind of refine that a little bit and say everything is theoretically in God's hands, but um, some things God doesn't directly intervene in, right? So God, you know, it was in God's hands to create the world. God created the world with hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and things like that, but God doesn't like send a hurricane to, uh, to destroy Miami or doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't cause a tornado to destroy, uh, Kansas, right? It, uh, that, that's just something that happens. Um, and we experience it as evil because we happen to build our house where that, 
hurricane happened to, to land, um, but that was a choice that we made often. Not always. Sometimes people live where they live, not exactly by their choice in, in a... In, in a So I think that there's two things. I mean, Jew, first of all, Jewish tradition doesn't quite ascribe to um, to the sin of Adam and Eve the same gravity that Christian tradition does. Um, so we don't have a we don't really have a conception of original sin in the same way. Um, uh, I mean, the, we certainly believe that. I mean, it seems obvious from the text that that Adam and Adam and Eve sinned, um, but whether that sin. Uh, characterizes is sort of like an indelible part of humanity from them onward um, is questionable and does not is not something that is usually um, uh, uh, articulated in Jewish text. Um, I think that the presumption is that the flaw within humanity that caused the, or the will within humanity that caused them to sin at the um, at the tree of knowledge um, was already there before they ate from the tree of knowledge. So, you know, if there was an original sin, it was how God made human beings, right? Um, but so we don't really talk about original sin quite that way. Um, uh, but again, you know, there, right, uh, the, the story of Adam and Eve doesn't make, really make a lot of sense um, unless, uh, unless humanity has free will, right? So, um, so I think that free will is a really good argument um, uh, uh, is a is a good argument in the in the conversation about theodicy. Um, what people don't generally acknowledge, though, about free will is that it's a major challenge to uh, God's power. Um, God is not omnipotent in a world in which there is human freedom, right? So the, when, when the when the Talmud the rabbis of the Talmud say everything is in the hands of heaven except for the fear of heaven, the response to that is, but the fear of heaven is an enormous thing. Right. I mean, that, that's sort of the, you know, whether or not people fear a consequence from God um, is the reason that people do all sorts of bad things. So to take that out of heaven's hands is really to like open up a whole aspect of uh, existence that's out of God's control, essentially. Right. So you can ask the question, is it is it out of God's control? Does God choose to leave it out of God's control? Could God step in? Um, Jewish tradition generally, by the way, says, no, God cannot step in to uh, interrupt human freedom. Not doesn't, can't. Um, it was an irrevocable decision on God's part. Um, uh, the Kabbalistic tradition says that it's simsum, uh, that God contracts God's self, so that, um, so that there is space in the world for not God. Right? And so, um, so you ask, well, how is there evil? Because there's space in the world for not God, whether that's human freedom, um, whether that's other kind of eruptions of chaos, whatever. Um, uh, there's space in the world for not God. So now, again, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's a challenge, though, of, of monotheism, because it means that there are other powers in the world that are um, maybe not equally powerful to God, but have, uh, have, have power that can challenge God, that can make it difficult for God, right? Um, so... Um, it's hard to have one without the other. Yeah. Well, I just think that it's sort of um, uh, maybe fortuitous. I don't know that to talk about Job on the um, on Holocaust Memorial Day, which is uh, which is today. Um, 
The Holocaust was a major challenge to the question of God's justice. Um, because, you know, if God is all-powerful and all-good or all-just, um, then how can you describe, and all-knowing, right? So, so God, you know, saw what was happening. Um, and God could have intervened to stop it. That's what it means by being all-powerful. Um, and God, you know, so then why didn't God intervene to stop the Holocaust? Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that, uh, so that's, that's a, that's a really challenging question. If you want to maintain those sort of like classical monotheistic principles of God's power and goodness and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, 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 and knowledge. Um, and people have tried different things. Um, some of which I think are kind of monstrous, you know, they say that like, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, that the, the Jews, or at least a portion of the Jewish population, in some way deserved it. And just like God used Babylon as the rod of God's anger to, uh, to wipe out the people of Judah, right? So did God use the Germans as the rod of God's anger to wipe out, uh, you know, a third of European Jews in, in, in the Holocaust. Um, uh, I've heard that argument primarily leveled against uh, liberal Jews. So Orthodox Jews say, you know, uh, you know, uh, God did this as a punishment for Reform Judaism or something like that. Now that's sort of, I mean, in addition to uh, to, to being really, really um, uh, troubling theologically, um, it's also like strange on the on the facts of it because many of the Jews that were killed, maybe the pre- pre- predominance of the Jews who were killed in the Holocaust, were traditionally observant. Uh, Orthodox Jews. So um, most of the Jews who were killed in the Holocaust were, were, were Polish, who were primarily traditional Jews. So anyway, um, uh, hold on one second. Um, uh, others say, you know, well, listen, you know, uh, we, we only see things from our narrow perspective. This is an argument in the book of Job. We only see things from our narrow perspective, right? God has a, has a bigger vision. And so in the kind of like grand sweep of things, um, there is a way in which the Holocaust, you know, fits a, a model of God's justice. And, you know, it seems to me that any model of God's goodness or God's justice that involves the systematic murder of one and a half million babies um, uh, is a real challenge of God's goodness and justice, and however you slice it. So, um, so that's, that, that's why Job is, I think, a fortuitous text to talk about in the wake of uh, in, in, on Holocaust Memorial Day, because, um, uh, because one of the major challenges that uh, uh, Judaism, and I think really in some senses religion altogether, has had, monotheistic traditions at least, ha- have had in the 20th, in the 20th century, now the 21st century, is um, how do you continue to believe in God when atrocities like the Holocaust happen? Um, especially when you, pres- when you propose, as monotheists often do, not always, that, you know, that, that God is all-powerful and that God is in control of everything and that God is all good. So, um, and, it's, and it's something that I think um, monotheistic traditions have not, has, is, is a challenge to uh, to monotheism that we haven't sufficiently argued, uh, um, found a compelling argument against, um, and I think is one of the reasons for the uh, for the decline of um, uh, religious affiliation, religious participation in the 20th and now the 21st century. A lot of factors involved in that. Um, one of my uh, spiritual mentors, never met him in person, but one of my spiritual mentors is a rabbi named Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he wrote it like the first page of his uh, uh, opus 
called God in Search of Man is that it's fashionable uh, for people to um, to ascribe the decline of uh, of organized religion to uh, to the rise of science, uh, but it's more accurate to describe the decline of organized religion to religion um, because religion has become uh, insipid, dull, and irrelevant. Um, and I would add to that, in some senses, an argument against it that it's become immoral, or that it, or that it, um, uh, or that its worldview um, uh, doesn't sufficiently account for immorality, and sometimes it appears to people on the outside produces immorality. Yeah. You're sorry. What's your name? Troy. Troy. Hi. No, 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 not the Antichrist. Uh, so first of all, the, uh, Judaism doesn't really have a tradition of an Antichrist. Um, but I, I would say that um, the, the, the idea of, uh, of Messiah in Judaism is sort of complicated. Um, but to like kind of lay it out simply is that um, uh, during the time of Jesus, um, the idea of Messiah was uh, was was uh, very concrete and temporal. Um, it was uh, the uh, uh, you know sort of like uh, uh, the third in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? Is the return of the King, right? So this is the the heir to the throne of David who has uh, who who has you know come to overthrow foreign rule and restore Jewish sovereignty. Um, and so, uh, in the time of Jesus, there were a lot of people who either claimed to be that, uh, uh, that, uh, Messiah means anointed king. Um, so either claimed to be that rightful heir to the throne, the, um, or whose followers for various reasons, uh, um, uh, believed them to be, um, and, uh, and so in, in that time, you know, there were lots of messianic movements. Jesus was one messianic movement that happened to make it. Um, but there are lots of messianic movements at the time. But generally speaking, when those messiahs, you know, uh, either, you know, failed their disciples in some way or, um, or more, more, uh, more likely when they died, uh, their believers stopped believing in them because, you know, like, Okay, you know, if that was going to be the king who was, pro you know, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sort of like in a fantasy mode, but in Game of Thrones language, if this is the prince that was promised, uh, then, uh, then they would have lived and overthrown Rome and, uh, and, and sat on David's throne. And they died and they didn't do that. So when, when, uh, uh, when Jesus was, uh, was executed, um, uh, presumably for, uh, for the crime of either claiming to be the king, so being an insurrectionist, essentially. Um, when Jesus died, um, uh, for, for most Jews who may have, like, heard of this person who existed, which is sort of questionable, he, I don't think he was all that, uh, uh, famous at the time, but at least the, the gospels seem to imply that he was, but I'm not so sure, uh, because contemporary texts in Jewish tradition don't spend a lot of time there's like, there's like one maybe contemporaneous text that I know of that talks about Jesus, and that's Josephus, and talks about him in a very sort of offhand way. Um, 
so you, you do not seem to have a, a, an enormous following. I mean, the, the Gospels make it out that you know, he comes to Jerusalem and, and you know, everybody throws a giant party. I'm not so sure that that actually happened, or at least not that way. Um, but let's say it did, right? Um, and, uh, most Jews would have assumed that when he died, that was the end of the story of Jesus. And it was only a, a, a small group of Jesus' Jewish followers who, um, who first you know, claimed to see him resurrected uh, and also interpreted that vision of his resurrection to be something that was novel theologically for Jews, um, which is the notion of a resurrected Messiah. Um, and the idea of a second coming of, of a Messiah was, was a totally novel theological idea. Um, uh, Jews at the time, as far as I can tell, did, uh, 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 did not believe that. So that was a way of the people who, who believed to have seen um, a, 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 a risen Jesus try to craft a kind of theological container for what they saw. Um, and I'm not saying that they, that they didn't see it. I'm not saying that their theological container was wrong. I'm just saying that, that the Jews at the time, um, uh, didn't have that, uh, concept. Um, and so when people said, you know, I saw, uh, uh, this, I saw this, we believe this guy was Messiah. He was crucified, but then he rose. And, um, here are some passages in the Bible that actually allude to this possibility. Most Jews said, I've never heard that before in my life. Um, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not going to join your synagogue, right? Um, and so uh, Christianity primarily grew um, in its early years um, uh, outside the Jewish community. I mean, it had some followers within the Jewish community, um, but uh, um, it got to the prominence that it got to, um, uh, I think in large part because of, uh, of, of, uh, of spreading um, the good news to the non-Jewish Nations to you know the Christian Bible calls Gentiles, but it's not a PC term these days, so I try not to use it. But anyway, uh, I'll use that language. So um, uh, and in in a lot of those cultures, the notion that sort of like uh, mythological notion of, of resurrection of of second coming was much more palatable, um, uh, you know. So uh, and was made much more universal, right? So the the Jewish concept of Messiah was very particularistic, right? Um, this is someone who was coming to restore sto- you know Jewish sovereignty. You know, if I'm a Gentile, like what do I care about? You know, some uh, some uh, Jewish king, right? But if the idea is that um, is that he's actually not the Messiah of the Jews, he's the Messiah of all humanity. I don't know. That's a different story. Right? So, um, but that's um, that's I think the, the the long and short of it. I think that that um, that Jewish, uh, you know, there there are certainly streams of Jewish tradition that sort of vilify Jesus. I think uh, in a lot of cases that's defensive uh, because of the incredible. Um, animosity and violence that was leveled against Jews and Jewish community from uh, uh, from mi- uh, medieval Christians, um, R- Roman and then medieval Christians. Um, uh, but by and large, I think that Jews today would say that um, uh, Jesus was a charismatic Jewish leader who had a significant following, who uh, and the significant following um, believed him to be the Messiah. We don't for various historical and theological reasons. Uh, yeah? That raises a question. Can you describe what it means to be a messianic Jew these days? Yeah. <laughs> but are you going to? I will. Or you say 
Right. Um, so, um, I, I, I have kind of a flippant answer, um, which is uh, which is uh, Baptists with good branding. Um, <laughs> Um, I think that I mean the, the, there is the, there's a there's a degree of truth to that, uh, which is that uh, the uh, messianic movement um, is an outgrowth of uh, the Baptist tradition, um, and you know particularly a, a particularly fundamentalist stream of the Baptist tradition, um, and uh, um, but it is you know so it, I think it has some kind of like innocuous elements to it, which is. Um, an attempt to kind of like understand and live by uh, the Judaism that Jesus would have practiced. Um, and I have no quarrel with that. Um, you know, I, I think that there's something, you know, really admirable about that in some way of kind of like, you know, um, uh, living the way Jesus would have lived. Um, uh, I think it gets problematic when, when it's called Judaism um, because those two terms at least the way messianic is used in that context are are uh, antithetical to each other. Um, so that that's part of why I think it's a, a problematic terminology, and it's a, I think it's a deliberately misleading terminology um, because I think that that uh, a lot of times uh, messianics uh, want uh, the world and the Jewish community to uh, to treat them like another branch of the Jewish community, um, which generally speaking, it's not. There are some people who are connected to messianic communities that were born and raised in the Jewish tradition, but uh, but. Uh, discovered Jesus and, uh, and, you know, so as sort of like an affinity to their ancestral tradition, uh, still kind of like enjoy the practices and comforts of Jewish tradition. But, but when push comes to shove, um, uh, they're, 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 they're functionally Christians. Um, and I think that the way that you can know that is if I were to go down the street, Let's go, go that way. Um, if I were to go down the street to the to Tikvat Israel, the Messianic Temple there, and uh, you know, asked you know, uh, ten people there, um, if you um, if if your child um, gave you a choice that they could either marry a uh, Jew who did not believe in Jesus or a Christian who didn't practice Judaism, which one would you prefer? I can almost guarantee you that nine out of ten will say a Christian that doesn't practice Judaism is preferable, right? Because then the essence—the essence—is the messianic part, less so the Jewish part. Um, so that's that's one of the things. It's also connected to, but not directly, um, to a movement that uh, that emerged in the I think '70s um, called uh, Jews for Jesus, um, which was um, a, a sort of like proselytizing front to the Jews, to get Jews to convert to Christianity. Um, messianic communities tend not to be as um, uh, uh, evangelical in that way. They don't, uh, don't treat it as their mission to convert the Jews. I don't experience that quite as much, although I'm sure it exists. Um, but it's a related phenomenon, I think. Um, the, the additional reason why I don't uh, why, why I have this sort of like visceral reaction to, the, to, to Messianic Judaism is I think that they've taken something that's mine. 
um, uh, unfairly, which is, I believe I'm a Messianic Jew. Judaism believes in a Messiah, in a Messianic era. We believe that the Messiah hasn't come yet, um, but it's a Messianic tradition in that sense. We, we believe in, 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 that, uh, um, in that theology. Um, and so, you know, like, I, I'm a Messianic Jew. I can't say that on the world because it means something different now. Um, uh, but, uh, but it's a core tenet of the Jewish tradition that I feel like has been misappropriated. And then it also makes it feel alien to Jews, right? So Jews today have trouble grasping that part of their tradition, um, I think, because it feels now so Christian. It may have always, but, but certainly now. Yeah. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah. yeah. You had your hand up. You you had your hand up, didn't you? I did. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay, my name's Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. So you talked early, when you first started, you were talking about liberal Judaism uh-huh. as opposed to traditional. Yeah. Is that, can you, can you yeah, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I would contrast it with traditional Judaism, but liberal, by, by liberal, what do you mean by liberal Judaism? yeah, by liberal Judaism, I mean um, a, a Judaism that sees uh, approaches to Judaism that see Jewish tradition as a historical phenomenon and who um, uh, uh, practice and relate to Judaism and Jewish texts and traditions in, in that way. Uh, and so functionally that means um, there, are, there are modern denominations of Judaism. Uh, um, I'm uh, in the conservative denomination. There's, a, there's the reform denomination, which is the largest denomination of, uh, of, of Jews, at least in America. Um, uh, Reconstructionist Judaism, those are all what I would call liberal Jewish denominations. Um, Orthodoxy, um, which is a, uh, a big tent of, uh, of, of like smaller denominations, um, is, uh, is, is, I would say, like the, the opposite of liberal Judaism, or not the opposite, but the, the other kind of like side of the equation, right? So, um, which is, um, does not relate to Judaism as a historical phenomenon, uh, relates to Judaism as um, a set of texts and practices that was given to man um, uh, by God um, in, you know, uh, uh, in, in its finalized form. Uh, and the way we practice Judaism now um, is, it may not be exactly like our ancestors did, but that's only because we aren't getting it exactly right, right? And sort of we have... Um, something I didn't say about the book of Job is that we're not sure that the edition we have of it is the original edition, um, in part because there's so many unique words and turns of phrase in it. Uh, uh, scribes, before we had photocopiers and printing presses, people copy these texts by hand. But scribes don't like words that they don't know because they aren't sure if they're correct. Right, so sometimes they'll correct them themselves, sometimes they'll leave them out, sometimes they'll change them. Right, so the text we have, Book of Job, today may it may be uh, compromised in, in all those ways. So that's what uh, Orthodox Jews, in some ways, think about uh, the traditions. That you know, we 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 we're, we're kind of away from the source, so it's like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, but anyway, so that's that's sort of I, I guess maybe illiberal Judaism. I don't know Orthodoxy. Um, uh, tr- I, I would call traditional Judaism something else, because um, orthodoxy is also a modern phenomenon. Um, uh, uh, all of all of these approaches to Judaism, in some way, emerge out of the Enlightenment. Um, 
I would say the closest thing we have to a traditional Judaism is Sephardic Judaism and Middle Eastern Judaism, which didn't go through the same kind of encounter with the Enlightenment that uh, that European uh, Judaism did. Um, but I would say even now, um, Sephardic and Middle Eastern Judaism, especially after the creation of the State of Israel and the mass immigration of many Sephardic and Middle Eastern Jews to Israel, um, the Judaism they practice now has been... Um, this is going to sound negative, but I can't think of a better synonym, has been polluted by uh, ideological orthodoxy. And so the traditional Judaism that would have existed before was much more um, organic, naturally evolving. So it probably looked, why, why it got polluted by orthodoxy is that the sort of like natural affinity of a traditionally observant and practicing believing Jew was to connect with orthodoxy because they're much they're probably similar in, in, in function. Um, but prior to that, I would say, I would describe traditional Judaism as a different kind of phenomenon. The Netanyahu is about to make the state of Israel into a Zionist uh, state. What does that mean? Um, okay, so I think this is going to have to be my last question. Um, not because uh, I'm scared off after this question, but because uh, I don't want to keep you here all night. But um, so I'm not sure exactly what you mean. It, the, um, I mean, the state of Israel is um, uh, has, has always been a Zionist state uh, from its founding. Zionism um, uh, uh, describes an ideology that uh, uh, that that you know was formulated in the 19th century. Uh, that said, um, uh, uh, Jews have the uh, right of self-determination, um, and uh, and not only that, but uh, most Zionists said they have the right to self-determination in their ancestral homeland. Um, and so, in, in in 1948, the vision of Zionism was realized in the creation of the state of Israel. Um, and so, uh, so from from its from its inception, it's been a, a Zionist state. I think that what what Netanyahu ha, Net, Netanyahu's version of Zionism um, is, um, is is somewhat uh, uh, distinct. So um, in the um, in the uh, years before the creation of the state, there are lots of different perspectives on what Zionism was. Um, and how it ought to be implemented uh, in, in reality. There was everything from uh, people who describe themselves as cultural Zionists that believed you know, that, that Jewish self-determination doesn't have to uh, include sovereignty over a parcel of land. It can be sort of like cultural determination. We can re revive Jewish culture and language and things like that. The, scholar named Chad Ha'am. There's political Zionism, um, uh, which was characterized by Theodor Herzl, as, you know, was about political sovereignty, and religious Zionism. Um, but within political Zionism, there are really kind of two major streams. One was uh, labor Zionism, and the other was revisionist Zionism. Um, labor Zionism was um, was uh, uh, secular and was, was primarily characterized, in addition to being kind of Jewish in character, um, but somewhat liberal in its Jewish character, you know, believed in Judaism much more as sort of like a, you know, the mono, the ethical monotheism of the, of the prophets of Israel, um, and was much more aligned with, uh, with kind of Western notions of, uh, of, of democracy and equality. Um, it was, uh, uh, economically progressive. It's the, the kibbutz movement, um, of communes and things like that is part of the labor Zionist movement. 
Um, the revisionist Zionist movement was um, was much more inspired by kind of like uh, uh, proto-fascism um, and of um, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know victory through strength and um, uh, national unity um, was a much more kind of natural had a much more natural alignment with 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 fervent religious Zionism that believed in Jewish superiority um, uh, believed in Jewish uh, territorial superiority. Um, some revisionist Zionists believed in uh, the land of Israel even extending beyond what had been historically the biblical borders of Israel. So anyway, uh, the, 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 the founder of revisionist Zionism was a, a man named Zeb Jabotinsky. Netanyahu is, uh, is, a, is a third generation Jabotinskyist. He's a revisionist Zionist. Um, and so, and he has, you know, in, in part succeeded in uh, in in uh, reshaping the modern state of Israel over the last uh, twenty years or so in his image, um, and in the image of revisionist Zionism. Now that started before him. Uh, uh, the the revisionists sort of had a had a, a, a sort of trajectory to to entrenching power in Israel um, from the mid seventies with the election of Menachem Begin. Um, and had and have been increasing in prominence and power ever since. So it's partially Netanyahu reshaping Israel in his image, and partly the character of Israel, um, who Israelis were, you know, the, the influx of Russian immigrants and others, um, changed the character of Israel. Um, the uh, the first and second intifada, Palestinian intifadas changed the, the dynamic of how Israelis thought about the uh, peace process relationship with Arabs. Um, and so uh, uh, Israel was kind of remade for the revisionists in some ways, right? So there's sort of a marriage of those two things. And so um, now Netanyahu was re-elected prime minister, and we'll see what happens there.